Hello, we'd like to welcome you to our first episode of Reading Across the Curriculum, a book talk series on our Changemaker Conversations in Education podcast channel of the Alberta Regional Professional Development Consortia, or ARPDC. I'm Rick Gilson, Executive Director of the Southern Alberta Regional Office of ARPDC, and my co-host in this series is Charlie Craig, of the Learning Network Service Regional Office of ARPDC. Now, before we get started, I would like to acknowledge that Charlie and I are in Alberta, and specifically, I am coming to you today as I sit a resident in Treaty 7 land, home of the Kainai, the Siksika, and the Tsutina, and Métis Region 3. And that it's my honor to be on this land and share this land with those who have come before me, and those from whom I continue to learn in an ongoing basis. The wisdom of, of all of those who have walked this land before and with whom I share it at this time. Charlie, where are you coming from? Well, Red Deer is in an interesting location in the province because depending on where you are in the city, you are either part of uh, land recognized within Treaty 6 or land recognized within Treaty 7. Um, so it's almost like its own little border town, um, depending on where you're at. In, in town. And so um, I believe the Red Deer River is what separates that um, divide, but um, no matter where we are in, in Alberta and in Canada, um, I think it's really important to, to think about not only what privileges the land and the seasons afford us um, at different times, but also um, the, the value of the land, both spiritually um, and monetarily as we might get into at the end of uh, the book valley of the bird tail um but just it it matters um and i think rec taking a moment and, and acknowledging how much it matters to us um is an important part of my day um particularly you know as i'm getting the kiddos ready for the bus and i have to decide how cold is it this morning um and and what layers do i need to wear because we live where the air hurts our face mm -hmm. <laughs> We're deeply honored today to engage in a conversation with the authors of Valley of a Bird Tale, an Indian Reserve, a White Town, and the Road to Reconciliation. We're joined today by Andrew Stobel Snyderman and Douglas Sanderson, whose Cree name is Amo Binashi. Hello, Andrew and Douglas, and welcome. Why don't you tell our listeners where you are from this day? Uh, thanks, Rick. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks so much for having us. Niti Kini San Amo Banashi. I'm Miskinadem. I'm Amo Banashi. I'm from the Beaver Clan of the Opasquiat Cree Nation. And I'm today uh, in Toronto uh, on territory shared by the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, and the Huron Wendat. Good morning, everyone. Thrilled to be here. This is Andrew talking, and I'm calling in from New York City, where my son is being raised as an American for the moment. <laughs> for the moment let, let me share with our let me share with our audience uh, about these two amazing men so andrew is a writer and a lawyer and i recently learned a Rhodes scholar from montreal who has written for the new york times the globe and mail and mclean's he has also argued an interesting word a case before the supreme court of canada served as a human rights policy advisor to the Canadian Minister of Foreign Affairs and worked for a judge of South Africa's Constitutional Court. Douglas is the Pritchard Wilson Chair in Law and Public Policy at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law and has served as a senior policy advisor to Ontario's Attorney General and Minister of Indigenous Affairs. He is Swampy Cree Beaver Clan of the Apaskawak Cree Nation. All right, gentlemen, I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but can you share with us how you came together um, to write this book? Yeah, maybe I'll start that. Thanks, Charlie. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here. So Douglas was my teacher. He was the, when I walked into law school at the University of Toronto 10 years ago, 11 years ago, he, the very first classroom I walked into was Douglas's and as I guess sometimes happens with your teachers, we became friends and he was my mentor and we've become uh, 
collaborators on this on this book and have been working on it for the last at least the last three years, but talking about it for about the last 10 years. And I came to this story, and we'll get into it more about these two neighboring communities in Manitoba, Weiwei Si Capo, a reserve, and the town of Rossburn that share this beautiful valley, the Valley of the Bird Tail. I came to this story about 10 years ago when I wrote about it for McLean's magazine. And the, the thing that got me interested in this place was that it perfectly illustrated the gap in education funding for Indigenous students on reserve and students in the provincial school system. And you had these two schools and these two communities very close to each other, uh, just a few kilometers distant from each other. And there's this 40% difference in how much funding each student was getting. And I remember learning about this bigger issue and about this story. And I remember going to Douglas he reminded me of this a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago. And he said, and I went to in his office, I said, Douglas, how is this possible? How is this not just legal? Well, I was a law student then. So my first question was, how is this legal and how did this happen? And this first question from about 10 years ago has was the origin of this book and kind of blossomed into this much bigger story, which I hope we get to talk about. In any case, I wrote about it 10 years ago. Douglas and I were always going back and forth every couple months. And every couple years, we would kind of touch base about this story. And about five years ago, I took a deep dive in and made this my life's focus. And I realized that as a non-Indigenous person, there were limits to what I could see. And I knew that there was stuff that I was missing. If we really wanted to tell this story about Canada, really, but if we wanted to tell the story about an Indigenous community and a non-Indigenous community, the only way to do this right was to work with an Indigenous person. In this case, Douglas was someone who was already in my life. We had this base of trust, and he happens to be this brilliant person who's been thinking about this stuff for, for a long time, and I knew that there were aspects of these issues that I, you know, just, he had a much better handle on this. So I reached out to Douglas a little about three years ago, and we've been working together ever since. Forgive the long answer. I hope that <laughs> is helpful as context. I love, yeah, I love that this is like, well, he was my teacher. I just, that, it makes my heart sing. Okay, so teach. When a student comes and says, hey, will you jump in with me on this? What was your reaction? Well, uh, initially, I, uh, I took it pretty slowly because it's a big commitment. It's, um, you know, it, it's working with someone on a long-term project. Uh, and so the length of it is one. Um, and the other thing is, you know, as an academic, I write and publish uh, pretty frequently. And you know, you get into a rhythm and you just sort of think, I think I know how to do this. I'm not sure how it's going to be working with another person. But I knew that Andrew was uh, really smart, super smart and a great writer, um, not just uh, the stuff that he had done uh, publicly for the New York Times and elsewhere, uh, but stuff that I'd seen him write uh, for my class. So I knew I wasn't taking a chance there. And then um, I thought, you know, this would also be a chance maybe to, to do some of the public policy work that I do academically, but uh, in a way that would reach a much broader audience and a, and a chance to maybe think about some of the theory stuff and bring it down to how would this affect the lives of, of real people. So I decided that I would join up and I remember like, I think it was the very first time we were going to like get on a Zoom call and like start planning out how we were going to do this thing. And I remember in the back around hearing on CBC, something about a virus going around in China. <laughs> and so this book has been written, uh, co-written, co-authored by uh, Stobo and I, uh, entirely almost as our pandemic project. We literally never saw each other face to face. Uh, we uh, quickly, uh, we combined our portions of the text divided it all into chapters on Google Docs, uh, and then set about to rewriting uh, the whole thing, little bit at a time, each of us combing through, looking for sentences or paragraphs that we just felt could be better. Sometimes I would 
spot something, take a few shots at rewriting that sentence, leave a comment in Google Notes. And Andrew would get up in the morning, decide one of those sentences were good enough or they weren't. And then he would rewrite it. And we would just pass these assignments back and forth for literally almost two years. It's great to give your um, former professor assignments, I will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it turned into a, a really, a really fun way, actually a very distracting uh, and fun way to uh, spend a pandemic by uh, co-authoring with a former student who is now a friend and colleague. That is awesome. Um, I, I, Andrew will definitely possibly, well, will remember this because it happened very quickly. Back on October 27th, I posted on Twitter, this book by Andrew Stovo Snyderman and Douglas Sanderson Amobinashi is filled with so many, wait, what? Moments and stories that connect the tragic dots of Canada's relationship with the indigenous people of this land a must read in my opinion for all teachers across Canada. And I hit post. And I don't think it was like an hour later, there was a, and it was Andrew. Now you replied incredibly quickly and we connected via email. In our first conversation together, you indicated that in the research process, you too repeatedly had these, wait, what experiences? Can you talk about a couple of those that really propelled each of you forward in the writing and urgency to share this book? And I'm intrigued as well, Douglas, like as, as Andrew's doing the digging and you're doing the digging and you're bringing these together, you are well-versed in, in this in a, in a, to a great extent. And as you just said, from a public policy place, but you've turned this into a story, which Charlie will get into a little bit later, but what, what were some of your weight? What's I very intrigued by the ones that really drove you? Uh, thanks, Rick. So there's a, there's a couple. Um, and I, as you say, I, I'm, I'm fairly well versed in uh, the landscape of this material. But I guess in, in retrospect, um, I think that I experience these teachings, um, you know, become aware of these episodes in history the same way as everyone does, sort of episodically. So, for example, there's some period of time when we are focused on residential schools and we hear the story about residential schools. And then maybe some other time later, we would hear a story about the past system. And so this is a system that kept uh, Indigenous people on reserves. You couldn't leave without uh, written permission from a federal agent. And you know, each of them is this tragic incident in our, in our past. But what uh, happened, I think, after we'd written Valley and I'd gone back to read it again, was the overwhelming sense of how those policies interlocked with one another generation after generation. That what we see actually is this, um, a, a complete generation after generation after generation system of laws building one on the other to create uh, the oppression and the e economic hardships uh, in these communities. And I don't think I had ever really experienced that as a whole. It had always just been as pieces. So that was one thing that I think really took me aback. Um, and the second piece um, is not, terrible is actually kind of enlightening um and that was i had grown up for some period of time on the prairies and um if you spend any time time on the prairies you meet ukrainians they're everywhere <laughs> and it's part of the background trope of the country right this idea of the ukrainian canadian and so i lived my whole life knowing about ukrainians knowing ukrainians all over the place never stopped to ask why and then um, as we were, you know, the book was uh, moving towards publication, uh, the war in Ukraine started and we started hearing about uh, Canada is home to more Ukrainian immigrants than any other country on earth. But again, no one, no one asking why. Well, in Valley of the Bird Tale, we tell the story of why. Uh, and, you know, it's a complicated story that I won't get into much now, but through the efforts of a single minister of the interior, a guy named Clifford Sifton, uh, we recruit hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian peasants who are being oppressed at that time by the Russian Tsar, uh, and we pay to bring them and we set them up. That the peopling of central Canada with Ukrainian Canadians wasn't 
an accident. And so much of the stuff that we were discovering in the book is that a great deal of it, most of our history is not accidental. These are purposeful policy choices that governments made. And uh, our government made the decision to go to Ukraine and bring people here specifically for the task of farming and to make them Canadians. And even as they, these uh, Ukrainian immigrants arrived, they were oppressed by the crown or by, uh, by many, many people. But the federal government stood up for Ukrainians at that time, insisted that they be uh, properly cared for and integrated, that their dances and that the languages be protected. It's a really great story of Canada and the way that we can, when we want to, open our arms and lift a people up. Um, and we, we can talk more about how the same time that same government minister is actually working to oppress Indigenous people, to repress their dances, to repress their languages. And so we see in this character um, uh, a 19th century character, but a very 20th century character as well. And that was, uh, for me, uh, surprising. We'll circle back to the dancing piece a little bit later. That's a, a piece that I've identified to myself. But Andrew, yeah, what 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 was your big shocker? Yeah, thanks, Douglas. Thanks, Douglas. Wow. Amazing. And uh, isn't it great to have a co-author like that? Amazing. Um, so I wanted to say, go back to that Twitter comment, if I may. I'm so glad you wrote mm -hmm. on Twitter, Rick. And the reason I replied so quickly. It's because I thought, aha, there's a teacher in Alberta, and this book is for teachers. The, the, we always envision this book being a resource for students, certainly, but also their teachers. We think teachers will be hungry for a resource like that. So I'm glad that I reached out, and it's, again, a pleasure to be here today. So I, I would say most of the stuff in this book is new to me. And perhaps the test for including anything in the book was, does it make people have that reaction? Like, what? Really? And this is a book of nonfiction with people using their real names. And so everything that's in here, we've done our absolute best to make sure that it's true. And I'll give one example for me that I thought was, you know, I think, you know, had my jaw dropping. And these were the stories about the pass system, what was called the pass system. And this was a system that was in force for at least 60 years, which made it illegal to leave the reserve without the permission of a federal agent. And, and for a long time, you needed a letter of recommendation from a federal official. And there are a couple things that are are make me think, wait, what? First of all, the whole design of it in itself, that idea is horrific and converted these communities into prisons, open air prisons. But one astonishing thing is that from the very beginning, the architects of the system knew that it was not lawful, that although they were going to enforce it as policy, and pretend like it was legal, actually it was totally illegal and they knew it basically from the get-go. And there are these moments where the Royal Mounted Police, I think about 10 years later, some lawyer in their office says, actually, this is not legal, you can't do this. And then the, the officials in the Department of Indian Affairs say, well, we're gonna enforce it anyway. And we'll just try to pretend like it's legal as long as we can. And still, I think, I, in my mind, had trouble accepting that this was a thing in Canadian history, which is one of the reasons why we include in the book a picture of a pass. There were passes being issued up into the 1940s, but we, we picked a pass, I think it's, you know, a couple hundred pages into the book, there's a picture of a pass belonging to a father. It's for a father who wants to visit his child at a residential school. And it's a horrific thing to see because you, you realize that, you know, parents needed permission to see their children at school because the government didn't want parents to see their children at school. This was just another way to create, uh, destroy the link between parents and their children and communities and their children. And it's, there are a couple documents like that in the book where you kind of need to see it 
to believe it. And this is one of them. And it's one that still sticks with me to this day. Hmm. Wow. I'm, I'm, I remember reading that, but I missed that, that image. I think I was probably listening to the audiobook at that time. I'm going to go back and see that. I should just add here, Rick, that, you know, as a compliment to Stover's amazing research, these things are really hard to find, um, like actual passes, uh, in part because when the federal government wrapped up the program, when they were like, this is illegal and we're not going to do it anymore, uh, they actually issued orders to burn all of the existing passbooks. And so a lot of those records just don't exist anymore. Um, and so to find and to be able to see one, uh, to be able to feel what that is like, just to see those words on a page, um, that's a real testament to, um, to, to Stobo's archival yes. works. Well, the research is amazing from, uh, from both of you and the stories behind it. Just this is part of the power of the book. You can't dodge this, like read it and move forward. Like, okay, now what? Charlie. So, I mean, this, this rolls really nicely into our next question, but you've, you've got real people um, and real communities, and, and now this book is out. Um, you know, how did you gain the trust of these communities to tell this story in the first place? And then what has the reaction been now that, you know, maybe the people down the road have read this book and gone, whoa, I know these people, um, you know, what have you, I might, I might start there. And I think maybe I should take a moment to say a little bit more about what the book is. And I think one way of describing the book Hmm. is where it's a story about two families living in these neighboring communities. And we're following generation after generation of these two families, one of whom is a family of Ukrainian Canadian immigrants. And the other is an Ojibwe family. And the ambition of the book is to, through these two families, tell the story of Canada and really to explain how did we get to the unequal outcomes of today. So back to the back to the question, which is, you know, how did we earn people's trust? Because the book doesn't work if we don't have people's trust. And as the listeners will discover if they read the book, it's a very intimate look into people's lives and they're imperfect people like we are and there's very difficult episodes that they share and uplifting episodes definitely and the book relies on them opening up and sharing with us and that's a very courageous act and and it took years you know it took years of conversations with people in some cases 10 years and it's not like people just tell their life story on a dime. It's like over time, if you keep showing up, showing that you care and want to learn and want to do it right, people over time, you earn their trust and they become part of the project. It's a highly collaborative project. And I will share that I was speaking with Maureen Two Voice maybe a month ago, and she wrote the terrific afterword of the book, I should say, and in some respects, it's the best part of the book, I think. And she's this amazing young woman who's an educator in Manitoba. And I asked her, you know, Maureen, how's it going after the book came out? You know, what's the reaction of people in the community? Because people are definitely reading it in vast numbers in Weiwei Capo on the reserve and in the town of Rossburn. And, and her works brings her to those two communities. And she's saying that people are coming up to me and my mom, Linda, who's also a big part of this book, and offering mm-hmm. us hugs and saying, you've been so brave and thank you for sharing this. And she feels affirmed in having been a part of this. And that is the highest honor we could receive as writers, I think. And there was recently another piece of gr- great news where a journalist called up the chief of Weiwei Capital, Murray Sir- clear sky and also called up the mayor of Rossburn and asked them, you know, what do you make of this? And Douglas, of course, at that moment are kind of worried because if one of these leaders, you know, (laughs) takes a big shot at the book, that's not good. And amazingly, they both said, it's great. 
we hope people read it and in, more people read it. And in fact, it's creating a bridge between our communities, which is saying a lot because for the better part of Canadian history, these two communities, like much of Canada, it turns out, have misunderstood each other and not really been communicating mm. well and not listening to each other's stories. And the hope for this book was always to write something that resonated as fair and as true in both communities, which means that it can resonate all across the country with Indigenous Canadians and non-Indigenous Canadians. There's something in it for everyone. I loved how the book could, um, it could be anywhere, right? I, I just, I think about my own growing up and uh, there's two different reserve communities kind of on your way into town and like so many of the stories and it, it you could replace it with any two names and, and find these stories, I think. And um, creating that entry point for the reader to go, okay, I get that this is in Manitoba, but it could also be in Saskatchewan and it could also be in Alberta. And oh my goodness, right. it could also be in BC or it could be anywhere in Canada. Um, and I think that speaks to, you know, your skill as a writer, writers um, in being specific, but it's a common, I think you've, you've tapped into a common experience um, for Canadians. And, you know, as Rick alluded to earlier, mm -hmm. I don't, I always say you can't unlearn something. So once you read this book and you know it, you, you there's only right. like a because, one direction. Because you go. know it and because you feel it. You know, there are images that you can get out there that show a crack in the road with a bandaid across the crack, the crack. And as I was reading it, it, there's a number of times you talk about getting on the school bus, going across the bridge that goes across. I've never been there. And, and so this is my my mind visualizing going over the bridge and into to Rossburn and going back across the there's a bridge but that bridge wasn't a healing bridge and and I look at the cover to, which is over my shoulder here in, in the video but with the with the river and the, the the bird's extended tail and the story behind that but to me, this book provides that opportunity if people will read it and just feel it, let it feel that that is the very much more, uh, more much more than metaphorical bridge band-aid opportunity opens the door for people to see each other as if for the first time. And, and uh, to borrow from two roads mm -hmm. <laughs> um, in a yellow wood, but you know, th this is this i think is where the power lies like you come to see people in a whole different lens and and i too was struck by the the iterative nature of coming back to these families all the way through and and connecting the threads and seeing the challenges and seeing the understanding um you know to to the teacher retiring from teaching but then going and teaching on the reserve and and again he himself as a someone like me in my 60s, uh, seeing people as if for the first time and and going, whoa, what have I, I can imagine there was uh, a, a moment of emotion there. What have I done for the last 30 years and how can I undo it? Uh, and I'm speaking of 30 years as a career as a teacher. Douglas, yeah. yeah, well, I, I just um, I want to talk just a little bit about about the the characters and um, their uh, universality. Um, so when Stobo first came to me and uh, had an early iteration of the book with many of the characters sort of in place, as it were, I started reading it. And I had been saying to Charlie earlier that I, I grew up in uh, all across Western Canada and ended up in high school in Northern BC. And, you know, when I was looking at, you know, the characters in Rossburn and the town side, I was like, I went to high school with these guys. <laughs> like they're like exactly <laughs> the same kind of people that I knew in high school. And I also, you know, I was an Indian kid in a cowboy town and uh, there were kids bust in from reserves all around. So I went to school with Maureen 
version of Maureen. In, you know, Maureen uh, as a character, she she starts in the book, she finishes the book. We see her grow and go to university and graduate and come back to the community. And I see, I those are my cousins. I, and, you know, uh, Maureen's mother, Linda, is a residential school survivor. And those are my aunties and my uncles. I can see those characters all around me, not just the indigenous characters, but the settler characters as well. They all are, um, they're, you know, they're people that you know, mm -hmm. they're people in your own lives and they're easily recognizable because there's something universal about them. And, and that's why they were such wonderful characters in some ways to choose. You know, Charlie, I think this leads very nicely into a, a, a little bit of a conversation and we're coming at this with, you know, why teachers, but that your question around the language arts, the might be one to jump to here. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, we, so teachers of language arts of English um, often talk about what we call mentor texts. And so those are illustrative examples or exemplars of um, a certain type of writing where we can show that to students um, and say, look at how this expert does it. Um, let's extrapolate, you know, those attributes or, or the, that craft and, and see if we can replicate it in our own writing, in our own work. And um, one of the beautiful things about this book is that it is nonfiction, but it unfolds uh, narratively. Um, and so I'm just, uh, can you talk a little bit as, as writers about um, your craft and, you know, obviously an intentional choice to build something based in, in fact, but have it unfold. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Like uh, thank you for your very kind words about the writing. I'll tell this really quick story. Um, after we had uh, sold the book to a publisher, there's this period of time where you're like still working on it. Uh, and actually, for some people, it's a period of time where you're actually just writing the book. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I have no idea how people live with that kind of pressure. So we were just rewriting the book, and it felt like an enormous amount of pressure. Anyway, we, we brought it uh, in to our meeting with the book editor, and uh, he said, you know, this is this is the best first draft I've ever read. And I still actually choked, <laughs> as he said. He said, that's draft 173. <laughs> <laughs> um, so students take yeah. note right there students you know, and I so and again like as an academic you know I usually just write the thing I send it off to the journal it comes back with corrections I hit accept all and I'm done um, but, <laughs> but this was about like digging into the craft and actually writing and rewriting and you know not being afraid to rewrite something to, to think that something can be made better and then to just make it better or if I can't make a baby better, uh, maybe maybe Stobo can make it better, and he always could. Um, so I think part of the craft then is being willing to accept that no matter how well you do, uh, you can still do better if you go back and and put in the time. And I think that was a real teaching for me in in uh, in writing with Andrew, because. Um, you know, Andrew's also trained as a writer, so he's really good at it. He knows all the technical rules, <laughs> none of which I know. So sometimes we'd be, uh, you know, I'd be reviewing my uh, my assignments in the morning, and I'd be like, there's a parallelism issue. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but I'll try and fix it. <laughs> so I think that was, um, you know, and I was saying to someone earlier uh, at another one of these talks, like, you know, reading... Um, literary essays as just like as a format is a really you know those are really really good writers telling all kinds of really really good stories and uh, excellent craftspeople when it comes to the writing um but uh, maybe i'll let andrew talk a little more about mm -hmm. <laughs> um thanks douglas uh, i wanted to say that I think, I think it was important that a starting point for us for the text was we really wanted to be readable and not just readable. Mm -hmm. We want it to be a compelling introductory text for people who don't are new to these issues because that's most of us. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that people who know a lot, we're finding they still find stuff in the book that for them, but we really wanted to write a book that welcomes in new readers 
and to take a tone that was also welcoming and a, a form of reading. I mean, we're both lawyers. It has sometimes been said that lawyers write badly and are boring. And we really <laughs> made a very deliberate choice. <laughs> it's okay. You can, it's true. You, we, we, made, we made a very deliberate choice to write a book that was engaging. It's not always fun to read. It's not always enjoyable to read, but it is always, we hope, engaging and will get you to turn the pages and will, um, and that takes a lot of work. You know, that's, that's hard to do. And you really need to accumulate all the information. And then that takes a lot less time than creating this cohesive story that kind of has all these interlocking pieces. And as Douglas was saying earlier, what we're really trying to do is to fit all the pieces, the big pieces in the history of between indigenous and non-indigenous people in this country in one coherent story about two families in these neighboring communities. And you know, the, if, it, if it reads in a seamless way, it's because it, we took years to kind of rub down all the rough edges, but I'm thrilled to hear Charlie that it was that it, and and Rick that for you it was it was a welcoming read and um, there's far too many books that have great information that are badly written and we didn't want to write a book like that. Yeah, I just I want to go back as well and just say something about um, Stobo said that it, we wanted it to be fair. We wanted to be fair, but we also wanted to be honest and. Um, honest and that, you know, not, not, not just an honest account of the facts, but honest, uh, an honest accounting from each of us. And so what you get when you wrestle back and forth between the two of us over the period of a year and a half or more is, um, you know, a very careful consideration of, uh, you know, how will Indigenous people feel reading this? How will non-Indigenous people reading this? And I remember very early on in the process, I had taken issue with some characterizations of some sort or another and uh, proposed strong gish language. And I remember I said, you know, settlers got to get past chapter two. <laughs> so let's, <laughs> let's dial that back. And uh, I think, you know, both of us, you know, writing from within our own, you know, siloed brains uh, have a, a view of the world that skews just a little one way. And uh, a lot of the process of the book of, was finding that center, right? Finding, an, finding words that were expressive of uh, the factual truth, uh, but that would also resonate with people in like we felt the right way. And so I think an example of this is there was a line early on about um, uh, the prairies were lands that indigenous people claimed as their own and i was like they don't claim it they own it uh but then maybe that's too strong and so you know after a couple hours i think we landed on some phrase that was like um on lands that they once governed as their own which gets all of the right sort of emotion into the sentence uh but without any of the push and pull um so, you know, it's, 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 it, the craft in it is about trying to find a workable middle between the two of us. And so I think what you get in the end is a very balanced, a very fair and a very honest account, uh, not only of our history, but how uh, our shared history, uh, but how real people have experienced yeah. that history as it overcomes. Well, and I think what I liked was the, when you have the indigenous and the non-indigenous experience, it kind of like, it, it goes like this, obviously podcasters can't see, uh, but it like it's it's going in sync with one another, layering into each other, but then you can see- Weaves it, together. Weaves together, thanks, Rick. Um, you should co-author a book, see, by the way, the two of you. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, how this the system and the structures in government push down on one side of the weave and push up the other side of of the weave right we're supporting on one side and we're crushing for lack of a better term um the other group and so i just i really appreciated that um the layering and the weaving of the experiences um grounded in you know a thorough 
end note section because who doesn't love good end notes book editors do publishers do not like <laughs> <laughs> we, had, we had to fight pretty hard to keep uh, as many of the end notes as we did and in fact uh i think still reminded me the other day that when we first handed it in there were forty thousand words of footnotes nice oh oh yeah because those are pages that they have to print that is right yeah you know but the good news uh, of that is any like high school students reading it thinks the book is this long but then they realize <laughs> the book is only like two-thirds that right, long and they think they've that's, won yeah that's I right still get a thrill when <laughs> not I a long book in the book it's definitely not you, a long you book. just you know the end notes are going to save you um for that one chunk i i personally read the end notes they were very well written you're the only one, Charlie. <laughs> yeah, not even our mothers read the end notes. But they did read the acknowledgments. So, you know, that's a good piece. I think it's beautiful that I don't I don't believe I could open any page in that book and go, oh, Andrew wrote this. Douglas wrote this. It, like the voices are are given honest balance and, and clearly you it's a collaborative piece uh, where the hearts are just pulled right together to make it to make it all work. Yeah, there, there is um, only one sentence that I'm sure that Stoba wrote and that I didn't touch, and it's um, a, a line that Linda actually speaks, where she says "ha ha ha," <laughs> but but then we argued for like half a day over the punctuation. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are lawyers. It's true. It's and it's, that's that's probably billable time. It's a very low billing rate for nonfiction books. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, but it, but it is it is beautiful and um, just just so inviting. Like that's the piece. I, I have four undergrad courses in Native Studies. I learned more in this book than anything that I can remember from those four courses. Things that you knew about sort of on the peripheral, now you you know in a whole different way. And, and I think there's a repeated pattern in the writing. The way that you come at the writing and weave in the stories, but then very specifically end the story. And, and so I, as an example, in chapter nine, it's about reasonable amusement. And this is an area that I did not know anywhere near as much as I now know. And it, it was the sustained attack on dancing and ceremony that, that included threats, withholding of food, restrictions on travel, amplified the entire pass system. Even like I had no idea. I knew the pass system stopped you from going from Kainai to Lethbridge without permission. But I didn't know that it could stop you from going from Kainai to Siksika. Uh, you know, from reserve to reserve. And, and it, I was reading it and Charlie said earlier when we were visiting, um, you know, some books, they get you, you know, you get so mad at what's happened that you slam the book shut and, and take a break from reading. I never got to that. I just found myself sad and and euphoric and kind of, okay, this is, this is something I've got to amplify somehow, some way. But, uh, and, and the entire piece around the commerce and then, and I quote, two years later in 1927, the Indian Act was amended to make it nearly impossible for Indians to hire lawyers. It became a crime for lawyers to receive payment in pursuit of a legal claim for the benefit of it, for the legal claim, quote, for the benefit, close quote, of an, quote, Indian tribe or band, close quote, unless that is the federal government gave it written permission. So you tell the story and then bam, and then even more you, in the chapter, you, go, you, you share several instances of forbidding all elements of dance, statements about how they just need to keep on farming. If they're dancing, they're taking the time away from working. And, and my heart's like, gunk, 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 squishing down. And then you say, uh, in 1936, and this after outline all dance in, I think, 1927. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in 1927, the Indian Act was amended to make it nearly, no, no, that, I got that part. The dance part was outlawed. And then in 1936, a troop of Ukrainian youth celebrated 
for Gov Canada's Governor General at the time, Tweedsmer's visit with a series of performances in, quote, richly colored native costumes, close quote. A photographer from the Winnipeg Tribune took a picture of the Governor General watching the ceremony. The caption in the newspaper reads, His Excellency smiles with evident pleasure as he watches tiny tots mincing through their folk dances, close quote. The next sentence is, it would remain illegal for Indigenous peoples to dance and hold ceremonies in Canada for another 15 years, period. Mm. And it, it's, it's, here's the story, and you weave the story, and you, you talk about how they, they even agree to, um, we, we won't include these parts, some of the ceremonial parts of, say, the sun dance. We, we won't do that, but we'll just do this, please. Let us do this. No. It's against the law. You cannot. You cannot travel to somebody else's. No, 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 no. Uh, excuse me, I've finished talking right now. I need to go watch Ukrainian people wear their ceremonial dresses and have a dance. We'll talk later. Mm. But that, how you just throw that in. By the way, that the math on that, if I'm correct, I'm not really good at math, but that was 1936, 15 years later. That's 1951. Yeah. I was born in 58. In 1951, you still were breaking the law if you were an Indigenous person engaged in a dance. Well, Close well, my mind. Actually, the, the prohibitions on um, selling uh, agricultural products to non-Indians, um, that actually remained in force until 2014. <laughs> and that's another one of those beautiful, here's the whole story, and then, and that's, that was literally when I screamed to my wife, what? And she's like, what? You know, and I'm like, listen to this again. We were driving and we wound it back and listened to it again. 2014. But that's another one of those. Here's the story. And then there's the sentence. Yeah. Wow. And so this is, I think, why uh, we're so excited to get this book into the hands of um, you know, teachers and students in particular, because these are compelling and amazing stories. And I went to high school in Canada and Canadian history is the most boring thing ever. <laughs> and, you know, we, we I'm have, a social studies teacher, Douglas. Ouch. I, I like the version of Canadian history that we tell chooses all of these stories that lack the, this detail, this compelling narrative, this explanation for how it is we ended up where we are. And, the thing about, I think in particular, indigenous settler relations is that each of us enters into the world with this notion of how it went. And, and we, we have little details here and there that affirm our view of how we think it went in the past. What Valley does is deconstruct the whole story and tell it as a narrative tale from beginning to end using real people to tell their stories and to show how these laws, how these policies affected them and their families and their lives. And that's a fascinating story of struggle, compromise, of overcoming, of oppression. Um, that is, you know, in my view, a little more interesting than the 1764 Quebec Act, which I recall I spent a lot of time on in social studies. And then later as a law professor, I learned that actually the Quebec Act was repealed the next year. <laughs> and so all of that learning was unnecessary. But Valley, I think, is, is a tool for understanding our shared history. That's what it is. It, it, it's a, a technology, as it were, to peel back the layers to see how, how did we get here? How did that really, really happen? Uh, and Valley tells that story in a way that is compelling and that you know we think we'll set up we hope another generation to be able to look at these problems with fresh eyes and to see that change is possible change is possible and and because of the conversation that you wove in with the ukrainian settlers not only is change possible but you said it earlier douglas canada does have evidence of being able to lift people and save people and save wrong word probably support people to transition into great contributors to a interconnected society actually there's a piece of the story that we don't even tell 
that's about Canada lifting people up. And it's if you it's in the early part of the book, there's a class photo. And if you look, there's like, who's that Asian kid? And it's someone who came here from the Vietnamese, like when we were rescuing people from the Vietnamese um, le leaving Vietnam, bringing in all of those immigrants. One of those kids ended up in Rossburn, ended up in this class photo that's in the book. And it's part of the story that we never bother to pursue or tell. But it's just another example of how this country, when we put our minds to it, can lift people up. Hmm. Andrew, any thoughts? I, I just like the way you set out that chapter nine about dancing. And Charlie was referring earlier to the weaving. And I think we very, I think it hits closer to home to weave the experience of an immigrant community that is being lifted up and of the indigenous community right next door, which at the exact same time is being pushed down. And the story we mm -hmm. don't think would work if you were if you didn't have that scene of the Ukrainian kids dancing for the governor general. I think people have a way of tuning out the stories about indigenous people. Perhaps some of us have that instinct, but if you can sh build a story where non-indigenous people can see themselves in that story as well, that's really where we think the power of the book comes from. Yeah, and I just, I also wanna say like for all the teachers out there, Valley of the Bird Tale offers at least one and possibly two instances of actual dramatic irony. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so rare to come across. There's, there's so many. Uh, uh, the entire commerce piece, and yeah. you, you want to sell a load of wood mm -hmm. for ten dollars, but you didn't have a pass, and the fine is twenty dollars. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, at a time where twenty dollars well put me in jail for three months, yeah. because because I wanted to soil a load of firewood to get through the winter. Golly! One of the pieces that got me was the you're not allowed to innovate, like you're not allowed machinery, yeah, um, because you know that Wait, not working what? is hard. Yeah, right. <laughs> like yeah. I knew a lot, but like that one was like that's right. I I, I just you know. One of my friends always says, I just can't even. That was one of those, like, I just can't even moments because who is thinking this stuff? And it's not just who, it's government policy, right. um, yeah. which is like another layer of, um, you know, and Douglas, I'm totally with you. I didn't get Canadian history because like, at least everywhere else had some sort of a war or something right. to like spice <laughs> it up. That's right. And we're just like, yeah. And then this thing happened, this act happened. And then this other act happened and the end. Uh, but obviously we know now we're learning um, that there's a lot more, right? There's there's more um, there's more to the human story of Canada that I think is glossed over or has been glossed over historically because um, it's not as flashy mm -hmm. as, you know, a war and then another war and another war. Sorry, I so totally sidetracked us No, there. not at all. Um, okay, so sorry, Rick. You look like you're really about to like drop a bomb here, and I just oh no, there's just there's just so many there's so many pieces here, but <laughs> I, I don't want to drop a bomb. No, I definitely. I, I mean, yeah. I think one of the other strengths is that the book offers a way forward, and uh, you know, it's easy to see some people who are clearly villains in their choices that doesn't i'm, I'm not a huge count counts cancel culture advocate uh, I'm, I'm much more let's learn from this this was absolutely wrong don't hide from that it was absolutely wrong how do we move forward charlie you, you had some thoughts on that as it relates to the last chapter um yeah i i I love where you went in the last chapter of the book, and I'm not dropping any spoilers here, um, but uh, it ends with a very poignant paragraph. Uh, and I, would, mm. I just want to share Made that. Made me cry, Charlie. I didn't write the first draft of that, I will tell you. Oh, it's so good. Um, to see First Nations governance as an integral part of our Canadian culture is no stretch, is not, sorry, to stretch the imagination. It is to stretch our arms and embrace each other as equal partners in a vast and complicated land. There is enough to share 
land, resources, wealth. There is enough for everyone and there always has been. Wow. <laughs> um, and so when I, when I was, you know, um, when I was reading this uh, and I got to that part, um, I, I, the model that you're talking about is obviously designed with, with Canada in mind. And I think we could spend a whole hour unpacking that structure. Um, but I can't help but extend this thinking globally. Like there, there is enough on planet Earth. There is enough for everyone. Um, if, if maybe we could figure out how to just share already. Um, but do you find yourself thinking this way about like leading with equity in mind on a global scale? Um, does your brain go there similarly? Um, or Canada first, then the globe? Is that your plan? Uh, so yeah, as a scholar, um, I really focused on the Canadian problem. And um, in part, that's because, uh, you know, I think international law has a lot to say, um, though it really, you know, international law turns on our, our just deciding that we're going to follow international law. So it, mm -hmm. it's not, it doesn't carry a lot of force in that way. But I, I, the reason that I think that I, I've been interested in Canada is because it, it, it has an interesting set of pieces that pull it all together. And these are sort of tools that we use to govern uh, that increasingly uh, Stobo and I think offer uh, an incredible amount of flexibility if we set our minds to it. So for example, just very simply, um, there's um, a part of the constitution that is a commitment to equality through something called the equalization formula. And what that does is it ensures that every province can deliver basic services at more or less the same level. Prince Edward Island's so tiny, there's no way they could run modern hospitals with just the money they bring in. So the federal government equalizes uh, a contribution to each of the provinces to ensure that that, that equity uh, is present. And that applies everywhere in Canada, except on Indian reserves. And so we are simply turning our minds to the very simple principles uh, that we adhere to as a nation that we implement regularly. And just saying like, why don't we bring indigenous people into this part of the deal? Why don't we extend these ideas of equality to them? So we're not really uh, proposing um, anything radical or new. These are familiar tools uh, to Canadians. And what we wanna show, I think is just that some kind of solution is possible in thinking about these issues a lot of times it just seems like there's so many problems and there's just nothing we can do and mm. that's why i think the value in in this is really a, about students and teachers it's about getting another generation to have hope and to think about these problems as solvable um to be able to see how we got here and see that we have tools to be able to address these issues if we turn our minds to them. And, and in that sense, you know, people sometimes say like, are you getting it in the hands of politicians? And yeah, we are, but politicians aren't gonna act unless they know there's a groundswell of people who believe in that vision. And so that's what we're trying to get out is not a solution, but a vision and a hope that will press others uh, to press politicians to find answers to what are solvable problems. They're not intractable, though they seem that way. We really just need some way to get started working towards solutions. Yeah, it's not Sisyphus's uh, rock to push up the hill and roll down every morning. There actually is a path. Uh, okay, and so I realize that our uh, audience is primarily from Alberta. So let me just say this about uh, the way we envision use of the equalization formula. We imagine indigenous nations paying in to the equalization formula in many circumstances. And, uh, and, and we, uh, you know, our, our plan involves indigenous people paying more in taxes, not less. So uh, although the equalization formula can be a touchy subject, I want you know, our listeners to know that the way we imagine it is, is uh, indigenous nations largely paying in uh, at, well at the same time in a smaller scale receiving. 
Excellent. <laughs> Thanks for that. Andrew, your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's maybe just a parting thought. And I was, I think what we want to do is offer a book about reconciliation and about Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in this country that is the most compelling one book you can read to get a great introduction. And I think there's a hunger out there in this country that is new for a book like this. And we hope we can offer that to people. And I hope that's what we've done. And specifically for teachers, who I think are among those people who want to learn more about this stuff, I really, in part, hope that we can help give them a context for the Indigenous students in their classroom. You know, I think many teachers have Indigenous students in their classroom now, or they will have in their classroom in the future. And I hope in part what the book can do is give a background to show, yeah, what was the, what was the story of education in these kids' communities going back a long way? And why are there some of the inequalities we see today? And I think one of the dangers for all of us is that we kind of look out into the world, we look at the Canada of today, we look around, and you see inequalities, and there's this urge to kind of blame it on people. And I think that's universal to all inequalities. But I think this book, part of its main ambition is to show that none of this is accidental when it comes within, when it comes to Indigenous people. There's been choice after choice by liberal and conservative governments for a very long time that explains a lot of the stuff that we see today. And um, I hope for teachers, that's a great resource. And of course, we definitely want students to be able to pick up this book and to read perhaps the most exciting book of Canadian history they've ever read. And the competition is not always great, <laughs> <laughs> but we hope that's a resource for them as well. Well, you could say the bar has been set, I think, gentlemen. Um, it's, it's a great read and um, appropriate for high school students, um, whether it's looking at your craft as a writer in an English class or the actual facts and history in a social studies or, or a history class. Um, but also, you know, in Alberta, as part of our teacher quality standard and our leadership quality standard is to have a foundational knowledge of um, First Nations uh, Métis and Inuit experiences uh, to help us inform our understanding and classroom practices. And um, this book provides um, exactly your aim, a really easy entry point into this case study of two communities that is easily transferable to any two communities across Canada. So mm. as far as achieving the aim, mission achieved, in my okay. opinion. And, and to that end, you both know that we're committed. Our ARPDC team, my my office and myself personally, uh, this I, I am frequently quoted or commenting, I have, there's a book and it, it, on lots of things. And I like to connect books and connect reading and, and, and connect people with books. And so we are committed to getting this book into as many teachers in Alberta's hands as we can, working with system leaders. And if there's anyone listening today and you're like, uh, how can we uh, maybe access in bulk uh, you you have our contact information on our podcast channel and we can help you get connected with that and and go that way and, and how does this book connect you know there's a book that's very popular around trauma and and trauma-informed education trauma-informed life and it's a, a Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey's book that so many times in Bird Tale um and I, I, I shorten it to that. I don't know. But so many times in, in Valley of the Birdtail, in Birdtail, there's stories told. And there's people looking at, at Indigenous people and saying and thinking, what's wrong with you? And the Oprah Winfrey, uh, Bruce Perry book, What Happened to You, 
tells the better question. And when we read this book, we get an, an uh, opportunity to have a taste of, because it didn't happen to us, and definitely would not one second consider stealing that in any way, shape, or form. But when we ask what happened to you, and this helps us understand what happened to them, we're able to be much more humane in what we're seeing and, and needing to change to take this further. We are so very grateful to you on behalf of ARPDC for, and ourselves personally, for taking the years to craft this beautiful book. Uh, it, it is an honor to, again, for us to have had this time. I, I've now had like two hours with you uh, individually and then in this instance, just so inspiring and uh, feeling and inspiring pushes action. And that's what you've done in writing this book. And this is not blowing smoke, this is fact. We, you know, we were moved to, to action. And that's really, isn't the truth and reconciliation a call to action? It is indeed. And this helps fuel that. So thank you both very much for your time with us today and for sharing your thoughts. And it's an honor to consider you both friends from a distance over just a couple of hours of time. We look forward to finding other ways to get you presenting, uh, working with people in Alberta moving forward and Canada if we can. This goes everywhere. So there we have it. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Rick. Charles. It's such a pleasure to be here.